That's how you do it. Welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel. Now, this will be a little bit different kind of episode. Uh, this past weekend, I was down in Anchorage uh, putting on a sheep hunting seminar at the uh, at the SCI Alaska Chapter Banquet, um, which I did last year, too. But this year, I decided to bring my recorder and record it. Um, I know there was a couple people that wanted to come that couldn't make it, and uh, it's just a good opportunity to, to give some good I, I feel like good general sheep hunting information, um, you know, I'm not giving away any spots or anything, but, and a lot of the stuff's probably information you've already heard on the podcast and in our discussions, if, if you've been listening for a long time, um, but it's good info. And, uh, and especially if you wanted to come to that seminar and missed it, then, then here it is. I, uh, <laughs> I had some, t- some major technical difficulties for a while with my computer. My PowerPoint kept jumping to the last slide, but fortunately for you in this, in this version, I was, a- I think I was able to trim all that stuff out of there. So you don't have to listen to my insanely awkward, awkward silences as I was, as I was coming pretty close to doing a Bo Jackson over my knee with that computer. But, uh, any- anyway, all in all, um, I hope you hope you enjoy it and get something out of it. The audio is not quite as clean as 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 I would like it to be. I just was using a mic attached to my recorder, um, so it kind of is what it is. But shouldn't shouldn't be too tough to understand and uh, shouldn't be too painful to listen to. Um, but I do want to thank everybody that came out and came out and, and sat through that, especially enduring and during the awkward silences when I'm trying to fix my computer. Um, now it was great to have everybody out and hope everybody everybody got something out of it and there was it was several podcast listeners that, that came up and said hi afterwards so man I, I really really appreciate appreciate that and and I appreciate all you guys who are out there listening to it um you know it's kind of just just one of those things it it really means something when when you know people start coming and, and telling you they actually enjoy the stuff in person so anyway thank you again and uh, and hope you enjoy it thank you. All right, we're we're a couple minutes couple minutes early, but I think um, we can go ahead go ahead and get started if you guys are already. Uh, appreciate you appreciate you showing up to hear me hear me yak about this, and uh, um, hopefully this should should give a lot of info. Um, obviously, I'm going to be talking about hunting doll sheep today, um, something that a lot of us obviously everyone here is a little bit interested in. And living up here, we have a lot of great opportunities for hunting doll sheep. Um, and uh, I guess also if, if you have trouble hearing me, if I need to speak up, just just yell. It won't hurt my feelings. Um, uh, my name's Tyler Friel, and uh, I live up in Fairbanks. And a little bit of background on myself: I've uh, been hunting sheep every year for 16 years. Which there's there's plenty of people that, that have a lot more experience than I do. But um, I've learned learned a fair bit. Um, taking 13 rams myself and. I'll call the 29 rams total just ones that I've been there for with hunting partners and and whatnot over the years. Now, as kind of an overview of the things I want to talk about, um, it's it's a lot of info. You know, we could really like hit a two-hour seminar on just about any any aspect of sheep hunting. You really could dive in the weeds, but uh, these are kind of the things I want to hit. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about why we hunt sheep. Um, so much of, of 
the sheep hunting processes and planning and prep and gear and stuff like that. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about that stuff and uh, and just the actual hunting and, and trophy care aspects, um, what you, things to do in the field. Now, um, I'm going to try, I kind of got it broken up into sections, so if, I'm going to try and stop at the end of each section to you know answer questions because I want to make sure that, that if anyone has stuff that, anything particular they want to hear more about um that we get get everybody's questions answered and and that you get what you want to get out of out of this now obviously the question why would we want to hunt sheep um you know all the all the stories you hear about it just the, the common theme is how tough it is how difficult it is how miserable it is and it certainly is like a big a big physical and mental challenge um you know, there's that aspect, um, the country they live in, obviously, you know, all you got to do is go up into it and it's pretty mesmerizing, just country where people really don't belong. And, uh, and for a lot of people, it's very rewarding to, to spend time in that country and hunt those animals. Um, they're, you know, obviously they're one of my favorite animals or I wouldn't spend that much time hunting them, but, uh, you know, they're the trophy value, the meat's fantastic. They're just really, really cool animals. And, you know, if you're, you're interested in sheep hunting now and you, you haven't gone, once you go, you'll either probably be addicted to it or you won't ever want to go again. You know, that's a pretty common, a pretty common thing. You know, you don't really ever hear, hear too much waffling in the middle. It's either you love it or you hate it. So when we're actually starting to talk about sheep hunting, getting interested in it, we're just going to start from, from the get-go. You decided you want to go. And uh, for someone especially that's never been sheep hunting before, it's a pretty intimidating, um, seemingly kind of insurmountable task. How do I go from how do I go from just deciding I want to go sheep hunting to actually being on a hunt and and being successful? Um, the first thing you you know it, we'll talk about draw draw versus general harvest areas because um, picking an area is kind of one of your one of your big critical planning spots. Um, Picking a specific area and picking a hunting partner, as well as uh, the phys- you know sheep shape, what everyone calls the physical requirements of, of of sheep hunting and what you need to be prepared for. So these are kind of what we're what we're going to go through. Now, the kind of if you if you look, pay attention on internet forums and and, and and you know Facebook groups and all this, it seems like a lot of people are under the impression that you have to draw a tag. You hear all the time I hear people say, "Well, I'm waiting to draw a tag before I go sheep hunting," and there are some awesome draw tag opportunities if you happen to draw the tag, but um, it's definitely a misconception. You know, you, you do not have to draw a tag in most of the state to to go sheep hunting, and. Uh, if you do happen to draw a tag, don't expect it to be an easy hunt. That's kind of another misconception. So, you know, sometimes it happens, but a lot of the, you know, I've only drawn one tag and it was not a very easy hunt. I did very well, but a lot of these areas, you're still just going to have going to have to work as hard or harder as you would in general harvest areas. Now, um, you know, an, an example of this is, is also that a lot of times these these like. Delta control use, for example, it's a it's a great hunt to get. There's a lot of rams, a lot of sheep, and a lot of really great country to hunt. But I've seen on the, the this particular hunt, um, I saw more people than I had probably in the last in the three years 
of hunting, you know, the previous three years of hunting general harvest areas combined. You know, so just because you get the draw tag doesn't mean you're, you know, all this other, all these other principles are null and void, and you can you're just going to have an easy hunt. So plan on plan on working equally as hard or harder because there are some great opportunities there. Anyway, as a, you know, if you're going with a charter service, most most of those services will have specific spots that they're willing to drop you. Occasionally, we'll run into one that you can work with and be like, hey, you know, and tell them somewhere you want to go, and sometimes they'll work with you. But you know, it's a business for them, so generally, like they've got their spots you can pick from that they have gone into and out of a bunch of times. They know it's safe. They know it's you know economical for them. They can price it. Um, um, so that's usually what you're going to be what you're going to be dealing with. And uh, regardless of whether you fly in or not, you should still expect to have to walk significant distances <laughs> to get into good hunting. I mean, you know, there's one 46-inch ram I can think of that was killed within a couple miles of an airstrip, you know, in the past decade that I know of. But you know, that's you don't want to certainly overlook country that right is right where you land, but go in with the expectation that you're going to cover a lot of miles and do a lot of walking. Um, if you do your research, there's a lot of great opportunities for, for just walk-in off the road and, uh, you know, four-wheeler and walk hunts. Um, I, I've, I've flown up to the brooks quite a few times, but I haven't actually done any of that. I haven't flown out to go sheep hunting since probably 2014 and uh, have done just fine. Um, there's still country. It, take, it can take more work and more research and planning, but there is good country that you can hunt, you know, on your feet or using a four-wheeler and walking from there. And same thing with, same thing with flying. You know, if you, you, you take your four-wheeler in a certain ways, expect to, expect to do a lot of walking still. I mean, some of the areas I'll hunt will walk 25 miles from the four-wheeler sometimes or more. That's not ideal, but you know, you kind of, it's kind of one of those things. You get stubborn enough, you do what you got to do, and uh, so your success a lot of times will depend on separating yourself from from everybody else. All right, may, we may have it figured out. So, um, I guess where I left off, uh, your success will a lot of times depend on separating separating yourself from other people, and just the quality of your experience is. You don't go sheep hunting so you can. You can BS with all the other hunters that are out in the field. You do it for, you know, partly for the solitude and, and the experience. So, um, so a few, like, points on avoiding other hunters. Um, like I said, we don't typically, as much of, like, a camaraderie thing it is, we don't really like seeing each other out in the field. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that most people aren't willing to walk more than 5 to 10 miles one way. Um, there are always people that will, that are willing to do that, but you're going to cut, cut out a lot of the competition if you're willing to, to put on five, you know, over five miles or over 10 miles into, you know, into an area that there's no other way to get in there other than people got to walk that far. Um, the ram in this photo, when we left, there were 32 trucks at the trailhead. And uh, we didn't see, by the time we were back hunting, we didn't see a single person for the whole time we were hunting. You know, that's not always the case, but it is possible to get away from people even if, you know, you pull up to the trailhead and it's like the most underwhelming thing you can experience <laughs> is go on your hunt and pull up and there's already 50 trucks there. Um, 
So don't necessarily let that, if you've, you've got a plan in mind, you know, don't let that discourage you too much. Um, so much of sheep hunting is just persistence and not getting discouraged and keeping after it because, um, you know, the average person's level of persistence, um, just have yours be more, <laughs> I guess. I don't have the real eloquent way to put that, but uh, just be persistent and stay encouraged. Um, and one thing you can do to get away from a lot of people sheep hunting is choose to hunt later in the season. You know, there are some late draw hunts, but general, you know, most general harvest areas are August 10th to September 20th. Um, you know, if you're big into moose hunting, then, you know, it can interfere with you there. But you, if you want to be a good sheep hunter, you got to pick either a good sheep hunter or a good moose hunter. And I'm not a good moose hunter, so um, I've kind of made my choice. But... Uh, September, you know, it's going to be colder. You have more of a chance of snow, but it's honestly hit or miss. You know, it's you could it's a roll of the dice whether you're going to have worse weather in August or September. There's been times where I think I think this ram was like August 29th or so, right at the end of August. We we got out in September, and uh, I mean it was just beautiful weather, great hunt, way nicer than it was in August. So you just kind of gotta gotta pick a time and roll the dice but most people have already switched gears into moose and caribou hunting and whatnot by by late august or after the first 10 days of the season so you know you can it can give a chance for everything to settle down and and you can still go have a great hunt and there's still plenty of rams left at that point um now like we were talking earlier where you're looking for for sheep um most rams are between, like I've seen them between 3,500 and 6,000 or 6,500. Um, unless they're spooked, I don't typically see them much higher than that. In a lot of country, there just literally isn't anywhere to go much higher than that. You know, a lot of the mountains are topping out, you know, 7,000 feet, depending on where you're at, of course. Um, but, and as I mentioned, they need, they need escape terrain with nearby feed and, uh, and the local fishing game offices, you know, for the regions that you're considering hunting, usually are pretty good about, you know, giving you some general pointers and 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 showing you some of this stuff. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't expect anyone to hand you a spot, but um, those guys are usually more than willing to help. They're, you know, everybody wants you to see wants you to have a have a fun, successful hunt. So um, seek advice, but but don't expect anyone to give you to give you hand you over a spot because most of them are very hard earned. And part of the fun of it and the, re the reward of it is is finding those spots and you know figuring out your own method of hunting in your own in your own areas. And uh, and once you get them, you won't want to let them go. Now, I'm going to spend several sl slides talking about picking a hunting partner because I think a sheep hunting partner is one of the. I mean, it sounds corny, but it's one of the most critical areas as far as the not only the success but the quality of your experience is is the hunting partner you choose um you know how much you enjoy the hunt and it, there's a lot a lot in there so probably the first thing is uh is the compatibility like how how compatible you are with the person i mean this isn't like e harmony or anything but uh in a way like in a way like you you know in a in a non weird way, you, you do have to be compatible um, personality wise with your hunting partner. Um, it's definitely not the place to find out that you're not on the same page, or there's some major discrepancy that you know you guys aren't going to be able to overcome and, and 
have a successful or, or fun hunt. Um, and probably the biggest thing with that as far you know, and it plays into safety, is knowing how your hunting partner handles stressful situations. Now, this is, it, and I'm not saying necessarily just give the boot to your hunting partner if, if they have ways they can improve. Everyone has ways, they, has things they can improve, but um, you want to know how the person you're, you're going hunting with will handle discomfort, um, you know, potentially dangerous situations, stuff like that. Um, it's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest excuse I hear for, you know, when people, you know, come back and ask, well, how'd your sheep hunt go? Oh, well, my hunting partner quit on, quit on me on day two, you know, is, is, it's not really, it's not funny because it, you know, ruins the whole, you know, you plan so long for these hunts and look forward to them. And it's such a big investment in time and effort that, uh, it's really a shame when, when someone's experience gets ruined because, you know, the hunting, you know, if they... If, it, if the hunting partner is the problem, um, you want to try try to find someone with the same level of motivation as you. You know, it's not it's not fun to be to be the one always always dragging behind or the one to be always having to to pull on the reins or, or get your hunting partner out of bed. Um, and I would be very wary of of unproven or like internet hunting partners. You know, it's it's the internet's not a bad place. It's it's a good place to share information and connect with people um you just kind of take everything with a grain of salt as far as you know i'd be very wary of going on a sheep hunt with someone i hadn't met before or, or you know didn't really have any idea what i was getting into and that's both for your safety and your experience as well as theirs um and it's kind of like you know you're kind of in it together like a like a marriage sort of for for 10 days um and you know one person's mistake can put you both in danger in some situations now i'm not that's not to play up the danger of sheep hunting but just like anything we do out in the sticks you know you're a long way from help and uh bad things can sometimes happen easy uh probably the biggest the biggest thing as far as safety wise is just i'd say gun safety and having a clear clear understanding and expectations with whoever you're hunting with um that everybody's on the exact same page for an example you know when when we go um you, you have your rifle strapped on your backpack. It's just like somebody will have a rifle pointed at them at some point during a sheep hunt, just just kind of the way it is, whether you're holding it or not. So, you know, we we will, you know, operate under the, the understanding that there's never a round in the chamber until it's time to shoot, basically. And, you know, and communicate like, hey, we're, I'm putting a round in the chamber. And uh, it, it sounds redundant and it sounds like something you have to tell your kids, but... I mean, weird stuff happens out there, and it's that's not the place to have a mishap. And it's really easy if you just have a clear communication, understanding of what what your expectations are, and 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 what you're going to do. If that makes sense. My dad just always pounded gun safety into me, so I got to throw that in there. Um, and not only like on on the safety aspect, but you want to have clear expectations as of what you what you guys expect out of your hunt you know so like so many hunting partnerships you know disagreements disagreements will ruin a hunt you know if, if one guy's being a stick in the mud about this and another guy wants to do something else i mean like as, as sad as it is to say like a lot of friendships have been wrecked over sheep sheep and sheep hunts um another thing is you know and this all sounds super redundant but 
it's in here for everything. Everything that I put in here is in here for a reason because I've either experienced it myself or known people that have dealt with this stuff. You know, like I call like a hunting spot ethics plan. You know, before you go, like if you're you partner up with someone and like, all right, we're going to go hunt this spot. You know, if it's for example, my my good buddy Steve, when if he take he likes to take new sheep hunters and help him out but he'll he'll tell him flat out he said i don't want you coming back here without talking to me and don't bring anybody else out here and that sounds mean but once you go through the trouble of ironing out you know a spot a spot that that you like to go hunt in you know it can it can make things go sour in a hurry if if the buddy you bring shows up with three of his buddies the next year and you know it goes back into just the way sheep hunters are just insanely secretive about their about their spots so you know, have an, have an understanding about that. If you're going to explore a new spot for the first time, you know, just be like, hey, we're going to go into this spot and we have kind of equal rights to this. You know, we can't, you know, come back out and then say, oh, well, no, that's my spot. No, you, you can't go back in there because um, all this stuff does happen, as childish as it sounds. Um, and uh, before, before you do the hunt, you also want to work out and agree how you guys are going to deal with the shooting. You know, some people flip a coin. Some people just say, you know, go into a hunt saying, all right, you have first dibs, I have first dibs. Everyone everyone can work out their own way, but they're, you know, and that's another way that there it does cause some tension when that, there's not a clear understanding. Um, my buddies and I will say whoever, whoever spots it first gets first dibs, but even that can get a little convoluted, and it has in a, a couple times, but, you know, you'd be a grown-up and, and work through it but you know have a have a plan is what i'm saying if you want to flip a coin or, or whatever um that will help help you keep a good hunting partner in the long run because once you find a good hunting partner you do you do want to keep them and just follow through on what you well i forgot decide how many sheep you want to kill if you're killing one if everybody's going to try to get their own you know you don't want to have a situation where you both agree to only shoot one and then you shoot one and there's two legals in the bunch and your buddy grabs a rifle and starts shooting two um, if you're not prepared to deal with both of them. And then uh, just follow through with what you agree with and be a good person and go have fun. That's what it's, that's what it's about. And uh, finally, you know, with your hunting partner, work on gear so you don't have a bunch of redundant stuff that's not needed. Um, anybody that I mean, even guys I've gone cheap hunting with several times will usually get together and lay out gear and go through it because it seems like there's always something that's missing or something that something that's redundant and you can kind of make yourselves a little bit more efficient. Because um, next we're going to talk about my favorite subject, which is getting in shape for sheep hunting. So, you know, everyone calls it sheep shape and for good reason. And uh, this picture, if anything, is just to illustrate that just about anybody can, can do this if you're hard-headed enough. Um, so, I mean, you know, basically, you know, sheep hunting is a very, a very physical endeavor. It's, it's you know, it, it will challenge you and it, and it is tough. Um, and it's, you know, the demands of a sheep hunter well beyond what we put ourselves through on a day-to-day -day basis, even if you're, you know, even if you're, you're in the gym all the time, it's, it's just a different kind of thing, being out, you know, out in the weather, you know, and, and doing this day in and day out for, for a long period of time, it's going to challenge you no matter what. 
Um, you're going to be walking typically very long distances, and that, that varies depending on the area you hunt. Um, being exposed to the elements, I think a lot of people overlook how much of an effect that can have on you, even if you're not, you're not getting hypothermic or anything, but just being outside and exposed to the elements, you know, you'll burn more calories and it's a wear on your system. Um, carrying heavy backpacks, of course, and just weird stresses on feet and joints um, that everyday life doesn't typically bring you. You know, you'll, and like stuff like, there's no, there's no exercise, in my experience, and I used to be in really good shape, believe it or not, but there's no exercise in the gym that can simulate, you know, side hilling through shale with, you know, a hundred pound backpack or whatever. It's, it's just a different kind of, of stuff. Um, and I say your fitness level can have a direct impact on your success. It, in reality, it will. The, the more, and I'm not saying don't get in shape, the more, the better shape you're in, you know, the the more it's typically going to benefit you, but um, the be- the most important part is just to be be in good enough shape that you can have fun and not get not injure yourself. Um, you know, it's not it's not a race. You're not running up and down the mountain most of the time, and so you know you can typically it's a very accessible thing. You know, you don't have to be don't have to be a gym athlete or like a you know a model of, of fitness to to go and have fun and be successful. Go at your own pace, you know, just go do it hard enough and, and sustained enough so you don't you don't hurt yourself. But uh, I know like I say, you just for for me I just go until I get tired. When I'm tired I take a break. I'm not gonna be anybody up the mountain, but I will eventually get there. It's just one a series of one step at a time. Um, and that's kind of where the men, mental and physical toughness both come into play. But it seems like as you get more experience, I'd say if you're less experienced, get in the absolute best shape you can, you know, because that will make up for it. will make it easier for you. Um, when you get a little harder headed, you just kind of know what you're in for and, and submit yourself to, to how bad it's going to suck and how bad it's going to hurt. Um, but you, you once you get, you get you gain experience, you get used to dealing with that and being in the in that situation, it's not nearly as overwhelming. Um, and probably the best thing, you know, any exercise is good, but I'd say the best thing you can do is go hike and hike a lot and hike a lot with a, a if you really want to get serious, hike a lot with a, you know, 30 to 60 pound backpack. You don't want to overdo it, but just getting used to carrying weight on your shoulders and hiking over uneven ground. Down here, there's, you know, you guys are lucky. There's a lot of great you know, challenging hiking. You know, sheep country is just right out the back door. You can go, go hike in it all you want. We have to have to travel a little bit more to get to it. But uh, yeah, that's. I mean, not to. I don't. I don't even know what I really want to say. Just that don't don't let the don't let the physical aspect of it intimidate you out of trying it. You know, just be in good enough shape to not get hurt, and uh, and anything above that's a bonus. Now, um, gear is obviously a huge part of sheep hunting, um, and we tend to spend a lot of our time and effort focusing on that and getting everything together. You know, we'll spend a year getting stuff together for a 10-day hunt a lot of times. Um, But your critical gear is going to be your clothing, shelter, camp, hunting gear, um, and everything you choose is going to be a balance of weight, effectiveness, and cost. You know, and how does this... if a lot of times, if, if you don't have the bud as much of a budget, you're gonna have to use heavier gear. Um, 
you know, when I started, I just got what I could afford, and it was ridiculously heavy. Um, I had to be in really good shape to carry that stuff around. But uh, there's also lots of ways to get the gear you need. Hunting gear is notoriously expensive, but there are ways, you know, even up in Fairbanks, a lot of, some of the local stores, you can you can look at non-hunting brand stuff. If you need clothes, you need a jacket, you need whatever. There's ways you can shop around and, and mix and match. Um, you don't have to be matchy camo Carl um, to be successful at it. Um, the basic functions of what your clothing needs to do, and I'll, um, I haven't seen what. Okay. I'll try to, try, try to pace this appropriately. <laughs> Um, the basic functions are to keep you as dry as you can, keep you warm, um, get you warm again if you get cold and wet, because at some point you're going to get cold and wet, and keep you comfortable enough to keep hunting. Um, those are, you know, basically all you're all you're you're looking for out of your clothing. It's not necessarily going to keep you super comfortable all the time, um, but it's a that's plays into your balance of effectiveness and uh, cost and weight and effectiveness. Um, as far as you know, your basic clothing system, and you can really customize whatever fits you the best. But you know, I typically bring base layers like some synthetic or merino long johns. I typically just bring a long. I'm trying to remember if I even brought long john bottoms last time. My, I get my get so hot when I hike that a lot of times I don't wear them. But base layers, um, pant one pair of pants and a light shirt, a light like synthetic hoodie or jacket, um, puffy layers rain gear and then you know all your your hats and gaiters if you want them and gloves um, the puffy layers have, I've really I never used to use them until I started using them and now I never will go without them I highly recommend getting a set of, of uh, puffies you know a jacket and pants um, the biggest the biggest thing you run into when you when you're talking that is synthetic versus down the down stuff's a lot lighter. It packs down a lot, a lot tighter, and uh, they do have the treated down now. That's supposed. That's a lot better at, at, at shedding moisture and not having the moisture affect its insulation capabilities. Um, I personally, I'd prefer synthetic. I've been just too many times where I've even had the synthetic stuff just completely soaked, and it's it's saved my butt or or made it made it comfortable enough for me to. Uh, to keep going um, but that's that's a decision everyone has to make you know if you choose to take down it is lighter and com and much more compact but you have to take better care of it and be care more careful with what you do with it and the conditions you wear it in um, weather resistance you know plays back into that in that synthetic versus down and uh, the durability versus the weight is another thing the jackets I like I personally like um, this company Kefaru makes them. They make backpacks and stuff, and they're they're a bulky, puffy jacket, but it's worth it to me. They're a little he they're heavier than a down jacket, but they've got some cordura on the on the elbows and and on the on the on the belly that you know the puffy jackets are notorious for tearing easy and then spilling feathers and everything. And that's another thing if you if you tear a synthetic. Um, good if you tear a synthetic jacket, you know, you got, or, uh, then you're not having feathers spill everywhere. All right. So anyway, um, I, I mean, I would tell people a lot of times, you know, what you have, whether it's, you know, like a Patagonia jacket, like, you know, that'll be fine. You don't have to get super into brand or, or anything like that. There's a lot of good puffy jackets and pants out there. 
the first set of pants I got was just on sale at one of the local stores that um, I, I've since switched to the Kafara ones that have some cordura on the butts because I was tearing holes in them and they're a little bit more a little bit warmer um, but just you got to try out different stuff and see what's going to work for you and and kind of figure out your own preferences but I would highly recommend a good set of you know puffy jackets and pants my gosh I did pause at that time um, while I'm getting this up the next thing I was going to talk about is rain gear and uh, I kind of go against the typical grain a little bit on rain gear myself. Um, there's, you know, with rain gear, you basically got breathable stuff and non-breathable, like Heli Hansen or, you know, the Impertec or like Grumman's the Neptune, I think is what they call their lighter weight, non-breathable stuff. Um, I was, I've, you know, been severely distrusting of any of breathable fabrics for a long time and uh, finally thought I'd give the breathable stuff a go this last year. Well, my tent blew up on me at like 2 o'clock in the morning in a rainstorm and had to hike out and... Uh, and uh, anyway, on, long story short, on the hike out, my rain, in about 45 minutes, my rain gear was acting like it wasn't even there. You know, high winds blowing, you know, water filling up my boots, running down my legs, um, and that was a set of, of $1,200, you know, supposedly top of the line, breathable stuff. Now I will say that the breathable stuff typically, in most situations, will work just fine. But the way I the way I look at rain gear is as a uh, as a survival item. Anyway, at its core, she, she, uh, rain gear is a, is a piece of survival equipment. You know, yeah, it's supposed to keep you comfor comfortable, but um, if you get in a real bad situation, that's supposed to keep the cold water off of you. If you, if you have a constant stream of cold water coming through your, your insulating layers, you're not going to be able to stay warm. It just isn't going to happen. So it's very important to be able to stop that cold water. Even if all your synthetic layers are soaking wet, they will still insulate you if there's not fresh cold water coming through them. So, uh, needless to say, I was I'm back on the on the non-breathable side. Non-breathable rain gear is not very comfortable, and I think they could do a lot of companies could make it a lot better than it currently is. Could make it fit better and, and be a little bit more comfortable. But as far as just a straight, it's going to keep you dry when you desperately need it to. Um, I think it's the way to go. I mean, and it wouldn't even be necessarily be that big of a deal if if the companies that sold the breathable stuff kind of were kind of it is what it is this can happen in this situation and you just roll the dice and take your risk um, but they they advertise it as being 100 percent waterproof and it's not and they charge a lot you know, way more money than i'm willing to pay for something that's going to be likely to let me down when i desperately need it to work and i know you know different companies do have their different um different you know models of breathable stuff but that's just my personal rule of thumb is if it's breathable i just don't i don't think it's worth the money to to buy and i i'm not going to take it anymore sheep hunting you know you can i could get could get away with it for another 20 years and be worth it but till the you know my one bad experience has soured that for me severely
anyway, that's my that's my spiel on rain gear. So, you know, use at your own risk. The the breathable stuff is light. It's it packs down nice and it's comfortable to wear. But you just got to be aware of some of its limitations. And if you do get caught out in some truly nasty weather, um, it, it it can fail you. Um, now, for boots are kind of another huge gear item. Obviously, for sheep hunting, your feet you depend on your feet being in good shape and uh, and getting you through a hunt. So. You know, a bad set of boots or a brand new set of boots that you've never worn before take out you get you get some bad blisters it can end your hunt in a very big hurry um, and they're a very individual piece of gear and uh, it really is worth taking the effort if you can try on a bunch of different types of boots and, and models of boots to find the set that really works best for you um, as far as you know different types of boots leather is going to be the most common um, Plastics are, are have been pretty popular historically for a lot of goat hunting too, and stuff down here in the Chugach. Um, the leather boots are going to be more flexible and typically a little more comfortable to walk really long distances with. But the plastics are a lot stiffer, like a ski boot, and they are more comfortable for climbing really steep stuff. Um, another thing with the plastics is they usually have removable liners. A lot of guys like that when late season when it's real cold, or you get your you know you get wet they're not waterproof but you get them wet you can just wear your little booties in your sleeping bag and they'll dry right out and you're not putting on frozen boots in the morning um, and then you also have what i call the soft synthetics which are like more modern like totally synthetic mountaineering boots that um, instead of leather they have a cloth and kind of the jury's still kind of out on those i just got a set of them that seem like they'll be pretty good boots but there's only you know you kind of got to put them to the test. There's only one way to really put them to the test, and uh, hopefully I get a chance to climb around in the rocks with them and see how they withstand. Because it's all in that that real abrasive rock you'll find in cheap country a lot. It just eats eats the sides of your soles up, and if you, your boots don't have a protective rand around them, um, and the stitching is in bad spots, it can eat through rocks. Can eat through the stitching. Um, you can run into problems. So you know I like. You know, it's hard to beat a good a good leather like stiff rubber randed boot and the and stiffness is another personal thing you know you may like really stiff boots you may you may not like me like you may like more flexible boots if you're typically walking a lot farther on your sheep hunts you may want to air towards the more flexible side because they are typically more forgiving on your joints it's not like a clunk a clunk that that some of these boots are um the biggest thing is if you can try on a lot of boots, that's the biggest key because the you know there may be six different models of boots that are all great boots, but only one of them really fits you well and will work well for you. Um, and also, you know, I'd recommend bringing a, if you have a set of insoles that you really like to bring them to try on boots because there's a couple of boots that I've tried on that the factory insoles were not working. You, know, you put them on, there's instantly pressure spots and weird feeling stuff but you take your own insole pop it in there and they're super comfortable so that's definitely something to consider and uh you know gear's expensive and there are there's ways to uh to save money where you need to but boots are where i would focus i would i would not chintz out on boots you know because they're you know you have your boots delaminate de on you on the second day of the hunt you're you're going to be in trouble um Water crossing gear, I'll blow through real quick. They, uh, you know, I've for years taken those. I don't even think they make those Neos River Trekkers anymore. They're like an overshoe with a Vibram sole you can put on over your boots. Um, they're kind of kind of like moon boots, basically. But they, uh, I like them and I've carried them for a long time. But 
Um, one of my cheap hunt partners has recently just gone back to wearing Crocs, just stripping down and wearing Crocs for the crossings. So it just depends on how much weight you want to carry and how much time you want to take at each, at each crossing um, to, to prepare yourself. But you want to make sure you get the Crocs with the four-wheel drive, the locking hubs on the back. And they're, I mean, I, I still bring them regardless, so I might as well be using those for river crossings anyway because they're, you know, you can say what you want about me, but they're great camp shoes. Let your feet air out at the end of the day. I mean, it feels nice after just having your boots on all day. Oh, the Wiggies. Yeah, I know a lot of guys like those. I have, I don't, I've never used them myself. I've heard they're a little less durable than like the River Trekkers, but. You know, I don't. I, you know, I don't know how long how long they'll last. A guy, it all depends on how hard you how hard you are on equipment. But they are they are another good option too. The glacier socks, is it they call them? The wiggies. No, the glacier socks. Oh. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, just pull it over. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I've heard that. That's where you can get pinholes pretty quick if you're hard on them. Yeah. And then uh, moving on to optics, you know, your basic, in my experience, your basic optics, you're going to want, you're going to want binoculars, you're going to want a spotting scope. You, I mean, you might as well stay home if you're not bringing a spotting scope. Um, a range finder is a really good thing to have. Um, talk about ri rifle scopes and, you know, prioritizing optics for your budget because they are very expensive. Um, you know, you're using your binoculars just to spot the sheep, and you're using the spotting scope to to judge them. Um, so I'd say, you know, like ultra ultra expensive binos aren't necessary. You know, like I I have a set of really nice binoculars, and they're the nicer. You know, you get up into the Zeiss and Swarovski and stuff like that. That's really expensive. You can you can sit in glass room all you know for a lot longer without you know giving. They're just clearer and they're 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 just better, but cheaper cheaper binoculars as long as they're they're durable and waterproof will work for you um i would if i was just judging between a spotting scope and binoculars for sheep on i'd spend as much money as i could on the spotting scope and get a little bit cheaper set of binoculars but that that's just me um and i like eight to ten power i don't find i don't find any more than that to be it'd probably be a little counterproductive they're going to be heavier and a little shakier you know all you need your binos for is seeing the sheep and spotting them um, I've never used a tripod adapter for sheep hunting, but I'm sure you would end up, it would it would be a benefit if you're willing to carry it. You're, it just makes glassing easier. Um, I know a lot of guys in the lower 48 deer hunting and glassing for a game that actually really blends in well. Swear by by putting your your binos on a tripod to glass, and uh, the range finding binos are great if you're especially if you're rifle hunting. Just kill two birds with one stone. Um, for gear, I like to wear a bino harness, obviously, because I can't afford to replace my binoculars and it protects them. But a, bino, a good bino harness, there's a lot of them out there, different styles, weights. It will it will keep your binos right there all the time. You know, I went for years, just would carry them in my hip pocket when I didn't want to have them around my neck. But when they're right there, you're more apt to look through them, and that's what's going to find cheap for you is looking through your binos. And then the, but you can really, as far as a bino harness, you can get, they have so many options now. You can carry all your doodads and, and whatnot, even some survival equipment if you need to. Uh, your spotting scope is going to be, that's, like I said, that's where I would, I would 
focus most of my money on as far as optics go. You know, you're you're using those to evaluate the legality and, and trophy quality of rams, which, you know, especially for for a newer sheep hunter, any legal ram is is, gonna, is a trophy. You know, so you and a lot of times it's splitting hairs on on you know on just there's a big difference between you know a one looker where you, you just see him one time and you know he's legal and having to spend some time looking at him and get different angles most legal rams aren't you aren't going to be able to tell with one look um when you're looking at a spotting scope i i like to have 60 power you can't always use 60 power because the mirage a lot of times will get you know, if you get bad light conditions you can't fully utilize that so you use a lot of like 40 45 power but when it's right, it's really nice to have 60 that you can crank it up there. Um, and, you know, you're, I like to look at the ease of, the, of, of focus on spotting scopes. Um, like I have a couple spotting scopes that are decent scopes. They're plenty clear, but the focus is a little rough. So, you know, when you're on a tripod at 45 or 60 power looking at a ram, you know, any movement, it, you know, shakes your picture. It's nice to have a real smooth focus that you can easily just fine-tune it rather than cussing yourself for five minutes trying to get it just right um, angled and straight eyepieces they're purely personal preference there's advantages and disadvantages to both i like the straight ones um, it's i pick up on pick up on animal easier with the straight ones but i do have to have a higher tripod setup to use it you know you can get away with a smaller tripod with an angle one usually um, if you're if you're you don't skyline yourself as much if you're peeking over a ridge or glassing over the top of a ridge having to get on top of the scope if you but angled ones you can also angle them down and kind of crawl up and look look from underneath almost it's not very comfortable but you can do it now rifle scopes i think that the dependability of them is, is the biggest thing you don't necessarily have to have the clearest the clearest scopes um the loophole scopes have done me well, and there's plenty of other good good rifle scopes out there. But the biggest thing in picking a rifle scope for a sheep rifle, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't overscope your gun. You don't need like a, a I mean even a, a, a ten to something like fourteen power thirty millimeter tube op, you know, rifle scopes. It's just more scope than you need. Um, I think most most of the time, you know, with normal vision, you can get by just fine with a two to seven or like a three to eight by 36 millimeter, the little smaller, more compact scopes, um, you know, even, and that's even on longer shots, you know, not, not getting crazy, but within reasonable hunting range, that seems to be plenty of magnification to get the job done. It's just the way you balance the balance, the effectiveness and, and, and cost. And, you know, cause you got to carry that thing on your rifle and it's a good way to turn a, a you buy a brand new five pound rifle, turn it into a seven pound rifle in a hurry. If you get, you get a big scope. And I do like the ballistic turrets. Um, they just take, you, you have them programmed, you know, you have them burned for your, your particular load that you're wanting to shoot. Um, and they're like the ones the loophole makes that I like to use are marked with the yardages. And so there's no, there's no holding over, second guessing, you know, hold six inches over their back type of deal. Even in reasonable hunting ranges, you know, under 400 yards, it's still, it still is just a nice peace of mind to be able to tune it exactly where you want it. Um, so I, I really like those and highly recommend them. Now tripods are, uh, it's one of those things that you hate to carry. I hate carrying them. It's like, why am I packing this every time? You can get by without a tripod, but, you know, when it comes to spot and scope time, 
it becomes pretty uncomfortable and can be pretty frustrating trying to hold still. You know, you can rest your, your scope on your backpack, but it's not quite the same as having a nice tripod. Um, and typically with tripods, you got, you're dealing with, you know, expensive, heavy, or, I don't know, it was broken down really well to me one time, and I can't remember how the guy broke it down to me, but you're going to have cheap or good or lightweight or stable, you know. A flimsy, lightweight tripod just isn't going to be as stable as a heavy one, and a cheap one's not going to be as durable or work as smoothly as, as, as a good one. Um, there's a couple, I have a couple, like, carbon fiber ones that aren't very lightweight, but they, they work, and when I'm hunting with a partner, we'll split. You know, one guy will carry the spot and scope, and the other guy will carry the tripod, and it, and it seems to work. Um, but probably the best ones I've seen, in my opinion, I like those aluminum outdoorsman's tripods. They're super expensive, but they're very compact and, and pretty lightweight, and they're a good mix of, uh, of quality and stability, but you are going to pay more money for them. Um, rifle bipods are another piece of gear that I, I'm hung up on. I'm, I will always take a rifle bipod. I started years ago you know, with the little heavy the metal Harris ones and for spent a couple of years actually carrying it on the rifle and then I got smart enough to take it off and just leave it in my backpack till it was time to get ready to shoot and just take it out of the backpack and pop it on the rifle. Um, you know, the typical sheep hunter, hunting, sheep hunter answer is I'll just use my backpack as a rest. And most of the time you can find a way to do that, but uh, in my experience, I, I, I find it well worth the wait to bring a, a rifle bipod because you typically are going to have plenty of time to set up and, and get a good rest and just make and be absolutely sure of your shot. Um, now, these there are some newer bipods out that, um, I don't know if anyone else is making the carbon fiber ones, but like the one in this picture is it's, uh, Spartan Precision Equipment. It's a company out of England that makes a bunch of very high-end carbon fiber stuff. They make a tripod, too, that's pretty slick um, and very durable. But um, I've got a couple of these bipods, and they're super light. They're less than half the weight of, of a, you know, your, over your Harris bipod. And uh, they use a magnetic fitting that they just pop. You just pop them right on your rifle. You can have them in your pocket. When it's time to shoot, pop it on the rifle and use them. And I've found that to be well, well worth getting. Now, backpacks, um, you know, it's another personal thing. You're picking, you know, with your budget, considering your budget, what's going to work for you and just trying to make the best choice um, to, to suit you. Um, there's, you know, your base, there's basically three types of backpacks. Your traditional tube frame, which everyone knows, like the Barneys, are great backpacks. Um, fantastic for super heavy or awkward type loads. You know, moose quarters is what those things are freaking made for. Um, very rigid, you know, lots of tie-down spots. Um, sometimes aren't the most comfortable. You know, they're great for carrying heavy loads, but they can be kind of a pain in the ass other times. Um, squeaky, noisy, bulky, stuff like that, especially if you don't have them packed full. You know, you have, the, you know, some sloshing around sometimes if you don't, if there's not a, a, as good a way to, to suck everything down and tighten it up. But they are a great option. I mean, the one in the picture is when I first started sheep hunting when I was 18, I bought that one. It was just one of the old Cabela's ones, and that's not anywhere near as nice as a Barney's, and I used that thing for quite a few years. 
Um, another, the other probably most popular type right now is kind of I'd call them composite external frame, like a lot of carbon fiber. They are an external frame because the frame is not inside the backpack, but it's 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 totally different than a, than a tube frame. And like Stone Glacier has, so I think I think they have external frame ones, not just internal. Um, Kefaru, this company makes them, and for me, they're like it's my it's my favorite backpack or style of backpack. They're stiff enough um, to really handle heavy heavy loads well, but they're also very comfortable and, and handle heavy loads as comfortably as you can. There's no backpack that's going to be comfortable with like 120 pounds in it, but you know it's all on a relative scale. Um, but a lot of these these composite external frames are very lightweight and they can they're made a lot of them are made to compress down to day pack size or if they're empty you can compress them basically down to nothing um, internal frame packs aren't aren't nearly as popular um, they are probably the most comfortable under real under light loads and the least comfortable under heavy loads if it's me I'd go with I'd go with either a tube frame or the composite external frame I, I wouldn't nowadays. I wouldn't mess with an internal frame backpack anymore. Um, they they can work. You know, if that's all you got and you're working with, you can you can make it work. But but I would go with one of the other options if it's me. Um, uh, stuff you're considering with your backpack. Uh, rain covers are pretty popular. I kind of quit carrying them, even with just a Cordura backpack that the water will eventually soak through. I guess. That's just where I draw my laziness draws a line in the sand. Um, I just don't really care to carry a rain cover, and everything in my backpack that needs to stay dry is put in a dry sack anyway. On uh, one backpack I've been using that's in this picture for the lot, I've been using that for the past couple of years, is made of a waterproof fabric, and it's you know there's zippers and seams and stuff, so it's not absolutely dry bag waterproof, but it does a really good job in the rain. I don't I don't find a need to to carry a rain cover. But um, you want to consider how you're going to carry your rifle, or if you're bow hunting your bow, you know you want a pack that's going to work work for you. You know, on this one, you know I'll typically hang a uh, or I stick the rifle butt and has a has a pouch there on the bottom. I'll stick the rifle butt in and strap it on the side. But you want to consider that when you're looking at a backpack, how how you're going to carry carry your rifle or bow um, and your spotting scope. You know, some backpacks have a nice spotting scope pouch. Um, this this particular one doesn't, but I just would wrap it up in my my little glassing seat just to cut up piece of foam pad. I just wrap it and stick it in the top under my lid so I can get to it quick, and that protects my spotting scope because they're you invest enough money in them that you gotta be careful with the stuff while you're out there. Um, a lot of these backpacks do have meat shelves too. This one this one has it. I just was in too much of a hurry to use it. Um, a lot of the stone glacier packs have meat shelves. It's nice to be able to keep your meat out of your main bag compartment. You know, what I'll typically do is throw meat in a garbage sack, and and after it's after it's been cooled, of course, throw it in a garbage sack for transport in the backpack, and then as soon as I stop, I yank it out. But I think I'm going to talk about that a little later. And the visibility of your backpack. I like to after losing my backpack once. I like to stitch a couple um, reflective tabs or use reflective tabs on the zipper zipper pulls so I can find it with a flashlight after dark if I decide to break my rule and leave it somewhere when I'm, you know, when you're 
on the final stock for a ram that turns into a mile and a half. Um, now sheep rifles, um, kind of like a lot of your other gear, you're, you're talking about um, how weight plays into it, effectiveness and, uh, and cost. Um, you know, we'll talk about, no, that's not an overview slide, so I'll talk about it now. Um, you know, generally any hunting rifle you have is going to work just fine. A mountain rifle is whatever rifle you're willing to drag up a mountain. But um, these days, you know, you, you do have a few more factory options. Typically, you know, the lighter your rifle gets, the more expensive it's going to be. Um, I mean, I killed a lot of sheep with just this stock, you know, Remington 725-06. You know, it's not the lightest rifle. It's not the heaviest rifle. Um, I got rid of this. I quit carrying a sling. I I just found that I was never u actually using it. It was either strapped on my pack or I was carrying it. So I quit quit bringing a sling. Um, but the biggest thing, I mean, and caliber-wise, you know, any decent hunting caliber is going to work is going to work just fine for sheep. They're kind of wimps. Um, you know, if you hit them good, they're, you're not going to lose them. So you know, whatever you're comfortable with and can shoot really well is is what I would say. I mean, anything you know. I mean, I think a two. I personally, think a two twenty Swift would be a, a pretty cool sheep rifle. Mm -hmm. A little wind, get a little wind drift, but uh, if you get the idea, you know, if if you're comfortable shooting a two forty three, take a two forty three sheep hunting. That's plenty of gun, um, and uh, just make sure you practice with it and you know shoot from some improvised positions and be very comfortable with your rifle. Um, trekking poles are another thing I used to never. I never never would carry i thought you know sissy sticks whatever and and i thought they were dumb until i used a set of them and they they help tremendously um especially packing out you know i'll even i'll even admit to using them on the way in but uh you know some of my buddies my buddy steve would always bring one and he'd just use it on the way out but man they just they they make life a lot easier in some ways and you can get really lightweight ones now my buddy frank likes to use ski poles because he's a little skier and then he blew out his tore his acl and he can't ski anymore so he just uses his ski poles for sheep hunting but uh you can get some really nice carbon fiber poles um you, you do have to be careful with them because you can break them even the even the tough ones um which is another good reason it's smart to bring two but uh they, you know, they're a big help for crossing streams is one of the biggest things, aside from just packing out heavy loads. Crossing streams, having other, having two more points of contact, you know, there's some streams that are pretty touch and go, and, and that can make the difference in safely crossing it or taking a spill and having, you know, all sorts of other problems prop up. Um, and they also, there's a lot of shelters that, you know, they use to support, like tarps and stuff like that are, are made to have trekking poles as, as the supports, or you can use them as shooting sticks. And I like to keep a little bit of tape wrapped on mine. You know, you always have uses for electrical tape um, or electrical tape, duct tape, some Luco tape, which, you know, to back it up a little bit, as far as foot care, um, that Luco tape, it's a medical tape. It's brown, super, super sticky. That stuff's the best stuff. And I can't even take credit for discovering it, but I was turned on to it, and it's about the best stuff I've ever seen for blisters and foot care if you're getting hot spots. Um, that stuff you stick it on if you get a, a, a new roll stick that stuff on there it you know you'll you'll be peeling it off in the shower after you get home is how, how good that stuff is and it makes a big difference 
Now, um, another piece of, you know, key piece of gear is going to be your kill kit, how you're going to, you know, the stuff you need to deal with a sheep once you get it. And that's, you know, kind of a personal thing too, but um, I like to keep, I like to keep it as one kit. I don't open it. I don't get it. I don't use anything in it. I, all I use that for is dealing with a sheep. You know, as, if, if you misplace things like I do, you know, if I got into it all the time during a hunt, I would, I would end up losing something that I need. Um, and it'll said it's individual thing. It'll it'll vary depending on your own taste, but uh, and how you like to do things. But mine in particular, I'll, I'll have I'll have two knives. Um, I like a little fixed blade knife for cutting up most of the sheep. Um, I think the one I have is a Benchmade, and I mean just any good knife. Um, and I do like having a Havilon as well. You know, you can you can just use a Havilon and take apart whatever animal you want to. They're really nice. You got to be a little careful and use some finesse um, so you don't break blades but you can you can rip down an animal completely with just to have with just to have on some extra blades um, but I'll, t- I'll put nitrile gloves in there just because I prefer not to be digging blood out from under my fingernails for a while so you can call me what you will um, sheep are pretty sheep are pretty clean animals but if you're on a sheep hunt and happen to shoot a grizzly bear or something eh, it's kind of nice to have gloves um, to deal with those um, I'd say a bone saw is optional. I used to carry one, but the only thing I ever used it for was skull capping rams. After we killed them, I'd, I'd cape them, skull cap them, and I'd carry around the stupid saw the whole time. So I just quit carrying it, and, and after we get one and cape them, I'll, uh, I'll just cut the lower jaw off and trim what meat and eyes and stuff like that I can out of the skull, and it's not, it's not that big a deal just to pack them rather than, rather than carrying the bone saw in and out just to do one thing with it. Um, as far as knives, um, you know, we talked a little, I hit a little bit on this, but uh, there are great options for both fixed and replaceable knives. You know, the Havilons are the ones everyone knows, but there's like some cool different titanium model replaceable, you know, scalpel blade knives. Um, they're, they are hard to beat for caping. Like cut, the, the thing I really like them for is skinning around horns of sheep because when you, uh, a sheep's skin goes underneath the edge of the horn if you see one that's been skinned correctly you'll see it, it there's a lip that horn is a lip and that skin grows underneath there you know so if you if you just cut the skin around the base of the horn you're leaving you know a quarter inch or, or more of skin that's actually on there and then when your taxidermist gets the cape back and puts it back on the horns he's going to have to do some work to 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 do that but those those flexible scalpel blades are just unbeatable as, as far as i'm concerned to uh, to get underneath and skin around the horns, um, and the, the fixed blades you can make them work too, and they're great for butchering stuff. But a lot of times they will need touched up. So if you carry a little ceramic or something like that to touch them up. Um, but another another knife not to overlook. I mean, especially if you don't want to shell out for expensive knives, is a couple of those Victorinox paring knives. Um, they're just like a kitchen knife. Literally, they're like six or seven bucks. Last time I bought a bunch of them. Um, like a three inch blade but it's a nice flexible blade and if you take a little stone or something to keep it keep it sharp they're a really good skin and knife um, and and caping you know they work great second to the Havilons those are probably my favorites for skinning around sheep horns just because they're flexible blade and you can keep you can touch them up really easy and keep them sharp that's pretty much all I use for skin and fur animals in the winter Um, the last thing I'd say about knives is 
I think it's a good idea to have your sheet processing knife or knife, whatever you choose, in your kill kit and then have a pocket knife or something to do your day-to-day -day stuff with because I have lost stuff over the years um, and luckily, you know, had a buddy that had an extra knife because you want to you go sheep hunting, you want to go with the bare minimum that will get you by and when you're, you know, as you get more experience, you start looking at your gear and think, what, what didn't I use last year? What do I wish I had? And uh, it's, it's, you know, you want to pare it down to the bare minimum that will get you by, but you also want to, you know, be careful and not lose, not lose your stuff. Um, my game bags, I think the synthetic, the modern synthetic game bags are the way to go. Um, they're definitely more expensive. Um, I like Larry Bartlett's tag bags. They're, uh, you can reuse them indefinitely. They breathe well and they keep bugs out better than any of the cotton stuff. And, uh, you know, there's been a hunts, few hunts, it might have been this one, where everybody else's meat was getting some fly eggs and stuff on it that had the cotton bags. But, uh, no, those tag bags are great. You can wash them and use them indefinitely until, like, a bear tears into them or something. You do want to have a first aid kit, and like everything else, it's kind of a personal, a personal thing, but you want some basic trauma supplies. You kind of got to pick your battles. You can't, you know, you can't treat everything out there. But, you know, the common stuffs, cuts and abrasions, cutting yourself skinnings probably the biggest in you know the most common injury there is aside from you know twisting your ankle or something if you can get get you know pain medication legally i'd highly recommend keeping some of that in your some of that in your kit and just leaving it there and not touching it because if you, you get hurt real bad i know a couple guys that that helped them keep their sanity or let them you know made the pain subside enough to where they could cripple their way out um so if you can get it legally, um, I, I highly recommend that. And uh, the blister blister kits, you can get some of those that have like the second skin. It's like a watery, wet stuff. If you get a bad blister and it's raw, like you can put that stuff on there and it soothes it. But um, I do carry one of those. But Luco tape, like I mentioned earlier, that's like I mentioned it because I didn't remember if I actually put it in here. But that stuff, uh, that stuff's about the best I can think of for for dealing with blisters or anything like that and it's a stiff enough tape that if you if you know how to how to tape ankles like athletic tape you know it's as stiff stiff or more than athletic tape you can if you twist an ankle you can tape it up if you know how to do that um, probably my my other big things might that's not big but a possible's pouch like all the little doodads and and stuff that you're you need for doing stuff throughout the day. I like to keep those in, in a single pouch that I have easy access to. Usually usually my first aid kit and that I just keep in the lid of my backpack. Um, you know, stuff like, like cord or I, I carry an extra pack buckle. I haven't broken one in years, but I've broken two of them over the years um, packing out heavier backpacks than I probably should have been. And if your backpack buckle breaks and you don't have an extra one, you're cruising for a bruise and um, it hurts, you know, because the, the whole... Those, all those backpacks are designed to, to set that weight on your skeletal frame, on your hips. And if you lose your, your belt pouch, you know, you can tough it out, but it's not going to be fun. Um, uh, different cord, cord for whether it's tying extra guy lines on your tent or tying stuff to your backpack. You know, obviously fire starter. Most of the time, sheep hunting, you're going to be in country that's not conducive to starting fires, but... You want to have some kind of option in case in case you find yourself in a situation where there is stuff to burn and you and you need a fire going. 
Um, I carry a little kit, little sewing kit for repairing clothing and, and tent stuff that could probably in reality be tossed and if I if I wanted to, but it's small. Um, I haven't had to use it yet, but it's still in my in my in my pack. Um, and then I try to like I have a little Ziploc bag of Allen wrenches and stuff. Anything I need to tighten the scope rings on my rifle or any of these common things or tighten like an action screw if some you know one of those happened to come loose. Just a few common tools um, that could save you a lot of hurt. I mean if you're you're 15 miles back there and you find out you're you didn't put Loctite on your on your scope rings and they're coming loose. If you have the if you have a, an Allen wrench that'll work for it, you can sort it out and sight your rifle in and keep hunting. But you know, as, as silly as it sounds, some little things like that can become big, like hunt-ending issues sometimes if you're not prepared for them. Um, I like to keep my water treatment drops in there as well, and like a he, you know a headlamp and batteries. Depending on where you're hunting and the time of year, sometimes you know it just doesn't get dark. But it's never a bad idea to bring a headlamp because even you know even for emergency signal purposes, if it's kind of dusky and you know even if it's not dark, you know a plane can see that. Um, as far as stoves, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You're looking at compressed gas or like white gas stoves, basically. And the only reason I would probably use a white gas stove is if traveling to where I'm going is going to limit that, you know. I think technically the commercial air services aren't supposed to let you take any compressed gas on there, but most of them are just kind of, you know because it's really not as big a deal as probably the FFA would like to make it out to be. But some places do are sticklers for that, so find out if you're flying with a charter service if they allow you to take compressed gas or like if you're, you know, you're flying to some, you know, if you have to fly commercial like Alaska Airlines to somewhere, you know, you can't take it there, so you got to plan on whether you can get stoves there. It's like you're going hunting on Kodiak, you know, obviously they have stores there. You're not sheep hunting there, but if you're going goat hunting there, you know, you they have stores there to get it, but you want to plan for where you're going. Um, jet boils are going to be the most popular popular stoves. They aren't very they aren't very pro hunting from what I hear. Um, it's still what I have, but MSR is another good one. Makes you know, there's a lot of good compact lightweight backpacking stoves that go off compressed gas, and all those compressed gases are pretty much interchangeable as long as you make sure they work in your stove. If you have a bunch of leftovers from from a different brand and, and or whatnot. Now, um, one of the issues you're gonna, I guess, let's see, are we almost through gear? We're still talking gear a little bit. Um, one of the things you're gonna be dealing with sheep hunting and is a big factor is getting water. You know, you got you, you have to have water to operate in a lot of that country. D despite how it looks, you can find yourself in some pretty dry spots. So, you know, some, you know, you're, you're looking at getting water from creeks, springs, seeps, melting snow, potholes and rocks, you know, that it's left over from rain. Um, you know, a lot of times with bugs crawling or little worms crawling around in it and stuff like that. So you want to have the gear to, to be able to safely drink some of that stuff. Um, and the most popular, you've got your drops and tablets, um, pump filters, Life straw, like bottle filters that you, you actually suck the water through the filter. You know, you put unfiltered water in a bottle or like the life straws are kind of nice. You can just stick them in any water and, and suck, suck it through the filter and it's in theory going to be okay. And I think there's some gravity filters too that you can hang up 
a sack of water and, and it'll filter through. Um, I, I prefer the, those Aquamira treatment drops. They taste a little funky, but, and it, you know, if it was a long-term lifestyle thing, I probably would maybe go to a filter to not have the, the chemicals. But as a short-term thing, they're pretty hard to beat for convenience, and you know they're going to be killing everything, everything in there. Um, you know, you don't some filters, some water, you know, glaciated water like this will can plug different filters up pretty quick. You know, and it's a pain in the ass if you have to be cleaning out your filter constantly. So that's why I choose to go with the drops, and they're like you know that big, just fit in my belt pocket, and uh, and I don't have to worry about it. But if you do choose to get a filter, make sure you familiarize yourself with it before you go and, uh, and so you know what to expect. Um, I really like these, these plastic bladders for water storage. They don't weigh hardly anything. And some of the country I've been hunting in recent years especially is pretty, you know, there's water there, but I don't want to drop 500 or 1,000 feet to get it, you know, every day or so. I'll carry a bunch of these. I'll carry like 10 liters worth of these these platypus bladders, and if I'm getting close to where I'm going to be starting to hunt out of and hit a spring, I'll fill them all up and just suffer to my camp, and then I'll have a couple days water at a time at camp, and you know just kind of and as I empty them out, I'll I'll keep them in my pocket, and a lot of times you'll run into a spring you didn't know about on the way or, or something as you're doing your your day to day hunting and. Uh, can keep that topped off but they're definitely a nice thing to have even if you don't use them you know more it saves saves yourself a lot of walking as opposed to just having your water bottles and uh as far as bottles themselves i'm cheap i like those two for three dollar powerade bottles you can get at the gas station um you know nalgene bottles are definitely tougher but they're also heavier and more expensive and you know the aluminum bottles are more environmentally friendly but um they're also going to be a little heavier and more expensive too. So, you know, that's up to personal choice. But those, I found those those Gatorade, Powerade bottles are pretty, are, are super cheap and uh, and pretty tough. I've never broken one or had them leak. And now sheep hunting food, you know, the basic principles you can you can get as as into this as you want to. A lot of people like make their own foods, and that's that's really cool. You can make you know, get super creative with it but uh you know i'm i'm i tend to be a last minute planner so i'm typically going with mountain house or whatever like freeze-dried stuff um you know, and if you're going with freeze-dried stuff make, just make sure you try the different stuff before you bring it because some people love like some you know one type of meal or brand like some people really like it and other people it's just not their taste you know so and even within you know the meals you bring you're gonna have a pretty rough couple days if you end up with like go you go for a couple years and not buy too many of them you have all the leftover ones that you don't like that just keep building up and building up but you don't want to throw it away so uh make sure and try the stuff out but anyway you're, you're looking for food and snacks that are high calories per ounce you know you need as much fuel as you can high fat and protein and you do need some carbohydrates too um not to get not to get too i'm not much of an expert on it but high fat and protein and carbohydrates like you know you you need a lot a lot of that stuff um a lot of times for your snacks throughout the day stuff that's convenient and fast you can stick in your belt pouch um you know i tried these i just found these at the grocery store before i went last year and they're pretty damn tasty up there i don't know how they taste in town but food de <laughs> food definitely tastes a little bit different when you're starving to death um 
but your breakfast, you know, your, your stereotypical oatmeal is what I like, oatmeal and a little butter or, uh, you know, something for breakfast. And then I just kind of hunt throughout the day. I don't have any, like, really lunch meal set. Um, and then your dinners, and you know, that's typically my freeze-dried. Um, I like, I, you can make it whatever you want to make it and what works for you. Everybody's going to be different. Um, I like to package my days individually so that I don't overeat too much if I get really hungry. I tend to get, I tend to not eat as much food when I'm out there as counterintuitive as that seems. Um, so sometimes I'll like, I'll be putting my carryover stuff into the next day's food. And, uh, especially if it's a slow hunt, like you give yourself the weirdest things to look forward to. Any questions so far on anything we've hit recently? With all the delays, I'm trying to pound through, pound through as much to get you guys as much info as I can. So if you if you get a question, don't don't hesitate to pipe up. Um, tents and shelters. Um, you're going to want your tents to be as functional as possible in high winds, rain, and snow. Um, you know, we all want it to be bluebird weather, but a lot of times it's just not not going to be the case. And like all your other gear, weight considerations and how are you going to balance like the durability of your tent. Um, with the price and weight, what you're willing to carry, and is you know is it going to be tolerable if you're stuck in there for a week with your hunting partner, and the gear coverage you know that your tent may or may not provide. The tent that folded on me last year, I still think it's a good tent. It's a good option. I've used that tent for a lot of years, and it was just a freak. I'd never you know that whether it's the direction or whatever that wind, um, I'd never been in a storm quite like that, and it just snapped all my poles and and it was older too i think i think i can they make some carbon fiber tent poles for for that model but uh it's all a trade-off you know you're you know you go lightweight you're risking you're risking a little bit of durability um but you don't have to carry it so it just is a very personal personal choice but it's stuff to think about you know and, and gear coverage it's it's a lot of times nice to have all your gear in the tent with you. Um, floored versus floorless shelters. I've done the like the tarp thing like in this picture a little bit. I'm just I'm just scared of floorless shelters for sheep hunting. I think it's like it's like the ring gear. You can get away they're nice because they're super light and you can get away with it a lot of times but I can also think of a lot of times where I've had to set up camp in sloppy you know I had no option but you know brush the you know a little blueberry brush this high you know that my tent actually smashed down or sloppy tundra or you know you're you got to finally pitch camp at one o'clock in the morning some night and um i i prefer a floor a floored tent but that's not to say that the floorless stuff um isn't isn't a great option or can't be a great option there's some teepees teepees and other stuff like that that guys really like to use um I haven't heard of any blowing away on anybody, so that's good. But uh, I would say that the floored, shelter, the floored shelters usually will keep you drier. Um, but if you're willing to pack them, some of those floorless ones have you can stoves for. And in some country, um, the stoves, like if you have wood to burn, those stoves can be a lifesaver, like on late season stuff. For tents, then what kind of weight would you recommend? How tough are you? No. <laughs> Uh, no, I uh, uh, the one I, the one that folded on me without the extra vestibule. It was like four pounds, which was really nice. Um, 
the one I brought back in there and then had to, I had to gather what was left because when, when it blew up on me, I just packed up all my shit and climbed in my rain gear and I threw a bunch of rocks on it so it wouldn't blow away. It was on top of a ridge line, which was not a great place to camp either, but that's another story. Um, and the tent I brought back in is the only other one I had on hand, and it was like a nine-pound, the one a couple slides ago was like nine-pound bulletproof four-season mountaineering tent and and it works great but it's heavy like i you know i don't want to carry I'm, I'm definitely in the market for a new tent this year that's my backup or like like a, a goat hunting tent or something that i can get dropped off and, and not having to carry very far so i mean i think if you can find something in that like three and a half to six pound range you know that you're comfortable with the dirt with the durability of it that's probably you're probably doing pretty good for a floored tent. Um, sleeping systems, you know, and I don't know, it sounds nerdy to say sleeping systems, but that is kind of what it is. Um, uh, you know, you run into the down versus synthetic argument again, like the puffy stuff, and I, it's your own personal choice. If you take down, you got to be careful with it. I actually did have, I when my tent blew up, I had a down uh, sleeping, backpacking quilt system i think it was zen bivy makes it that's treated down so it's supposed to you know shed the water better and i didn't actually get it wet but uh those those quilts i kind of i kind of underestimated them they were super comfy some of them that you know they come with a sheet that's, that straps over your sleeping pad and then the quilt like ties into your pad so it's like if you like if you're a stomach sleeper like me you know, you have room under that, and your pads, what, what your sleeping pads, what insulates you from the ground. Even if you're in a regular sleeping bag, the insulation gets compressed, and your pad is what's what's doing the insulating. So it wasn't. It was a lot more comfortable than I thought it would be. Um, but when I went back, I brought my synthetic bag. So take that for what it's worth. But uh, um, I think you know, temperature ratings for sheep for a sheep bag. I mean, I use a 20-degree bag, and that's always been plenty plenty warm enough for me. Sometimes my feet get cold if you're on a slope and your feet are pressing into the bottom of the bag, but you can throw some clothes under there, and that'll, that'll help with that. But uh, 20 degrees seems to be a good balance of not carrying too much extra weight. Um, and uh, if you, I'd say if you do want to use a synth uh, down bag and they pack down really nice and they're lightweight, you know, just get one of those Gore-Tex liners form or, or little bivy liner for so condensation in the tent you know doesn't doesn't get into your into your down um i definitely uh recommend packing it all in dry compression sacks in your backpack I'd like if not dry compression sacks and a trash bag because it's handy to have trash bags too but your sleeping stuff like that stuff you absolutely want to keep as dry as you can now uh when i was younger um I used to sleep on the ground a lot better and use just the foam foam pads, but I just can't do that anymore. And once I got it, once I got an inflatable pad, I won't ever go back. Even if, though, at the end of the day, it's pretty miserable huffing and puffing on those things. Although I think there's some that there's some now that you can get even that come with uh, with a little bag that you plug into your air mattress and you you just open up the bag so it's full of air and then squeeze it down and push all the air into the bag just over and over so that saves uh, you from passing out at the end of a hard day but um, inflatable pads are really nice they're really well insulated if you get a good if you can sleep good then you're going to be able to be a lot more comfortable hunting 
you're going to stay, you know, you're going to stay warmer. Um, I mean, just have a more positive attitude unless you're, if other than waking up every hour in the night shivering, you know, like I've done on a couple hunts, it's just not, it's not near as much fun, not near as rewarding. Um, inflatable pillows are another sissy item that I think are well worth it too. You know, I always used to use the jacket and you can get by doing that, but there's, we got some pretty, some pretty cool and affordable gear that makes it really comfortable. And those pillows, you know, they're about like that. It takes like two breaths to blow them up and you're good. Um, and I don't know why I threw it in sleeping systems, but a, a pad to sit on the glass. I just cut mine out of a square of the old like uh, Thermarest foam pads. And when I'm sitting there glassing, you know, it's, it is very comfortable to have just a foam pad that you can pull out and sit on on the ground as opposed to being cold and a lot of times wet and uh, sitting on sharp rocks and stuff. You'd be surprised if you're sitting there in the wind glass and even with all your gear on how much of a difference not having that heat loss to the ground makes if you're sitting there glassing for a few hours. Um, as far as there's quite a bit quite a few options these days as far as uh, the electronics and communication you know like used to just be the sat phone and then the you know the spot thing came out but nowadays we've got a lot of like really good options and if you already have one sat phones are one are a good option but uh if not i i, I don't think they're even worth worth getting just for this purpose um these garmin in reaches are, are pretty unbelievable in what they're able to do and you know if even if if you don't care yourself for your family's sake your your spouse or whatever it's it's nice to be able to communicate and if you're stuck in the tent by hunting by yourself for a couple of days in a row like it's nice to be able to touch base and these things you can get weather you can get weather reports on um they're just super handy and of course in an emergency you can you can you know punch the sos button and and someone will come get you but the the in reaches are probably the most popular ones i really like them um, another one is the spot x which it's their new one you can actually the, the only it's a little slower than the than the than the in reaches i took both of these i, I took them both to south africa even to try them out and uh the spot x one's a slower communicating i think it works on different satellites but i never did have it fail to actually communicate and uh, it's a two-way deal, not like the old ones where you press a button and it sends an email that you already wrote that says, hey, I'm okay. Um, that sends coordinates, and uh, and uh, you can actually type a message on the unit or use Bluetooth on your phone phone to do it. Um, so, And it's significantly cheaper. I can't remember how much it is, but it's cheaper than the, in, than the in-reaches if, if, if your budget is strapped. Um, the other, th the other, the only other com communication device this uh, Iridium came out with, Iridium Go. I don't, you know, I don't know how long it's been out. I, I just know, found out about them last year, but it's just a little box. They're not too little. They're bigger than an inReach, but it's like a hotspot that lets your phone, your cell phone, work as a sat phone and multiple phones. You know, you can set it up so there's a hotspot where multiple phones. I mean, I think they designed it probably for remote camps or whatever, but. Uh, but that's another option too. You can text and call on that, but you don't get the GPS benefits that you do with the with the inReach type stuff. And then, uh, you know, I and the last thing for all this electronic doodads, I do bring a couple like rechargeable battery banks. I try not. I try to use them at a minimum, but uh, it's nice to have some extra juice 
if you, if you really need it. And there's so many of those out there now, just uh, little USB chargeable batteries that can charge, you know, recharge your phone three or four times. Is there any questions about the on the gear before we bust into this? All right. Now, hopefully, this isn't like very underwhelming at the culmination. Hunting hunting sheep isn't isn't rocket science. It's not the most. It's by far not the most technically difficult thing. You know, the the difficulty and where people get discouraged is like the is a lot of the getting there and just staying mentally in the game. Um, you know, once you you find a ram you want to get, the hunting them, you know, really is 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 not that complicated. Um, but the biggest things the biggest things when you're packing in is plan on covering a lot of country and pace yourself. But don't don't overlook stuff you're walking by. Don't walk by a ram you'd kill anyway, unless you're you have some reason to think that no one else is going to mess with them, and you can kind of put them in the inventory and go find see what else you can find to come back to them you can do that but but don't ignore don't just put the blinders on and and think you think you got a camera and hands it out to the end of you know the end of the valley before you start looking um i don't know so many sheep i'm sure everybody has but so many sheep i've seen have been just when you're taking a break tired and taking a break where you don't expect them to be or uh you know, every time you stop, put the put the glasses up. The more time you the more time you spend on the glass, the the better your chances are going to be. And as far as actually, you know, hunting, like trying to find trying to find rams you want to you want to go after. Um, there's you know like the, your fixed your fixed spike camp where you have one spike camp that you're basing out of and, and hunting a different direction each day or, or checking different spots each day. And then there's kind of the, the carrying camp method where you're moving camp every day um, if you have area. And it just depends on the area you're, you're wanting to hunt. If you're, you're going up a, a drainage and there's all these different canyons, you know, that you want to, you may find a central location that works, is in reasonable striking distance and go hunt these different areas each day. Um, but if you're in a spot that it may work to, Go up this valley, cross through this pass, come down this valley, do kind of a, a big loop. You may want to just carry your camp with you, and uh, whatever your plan is, don't be able to move move camp if, if it's necessary. Um, this was in the TMA when I had my tag two years ago, and I had camp. I camped here. That's my tent right there, um, down in the bottom corner, if you can see it. But I. Uh, I'd camped there for a few days, and I mean, I'd run out ridges in each direction, and just wasn't really seeing what I wanted to see. And then had spotted had spotted a group of rams with two promising-looking ones about four miles away on top of this ridge line down there. So I finally had to uh, I just had to pick up camp and 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 move out there. I didn't make it. I ended up shooting my ram in that saddle at the very top. But uh, yeah, don't be afraid to move camp and change the plan if things aren't if things aren't working. And then the other main thing is um, hunting country from the top um, or the bottom. Up in the Brooks Range, if you have a lot more areas that you have that you can see most of the country from the river bottom, there's no sense in climbing when you don't have to. Like you know, covered country and glass in the river bottom. But there's also a lot of country that you just can't you can't see from the bottoms. 
and and people will walk by a lot of rams um, because they just can't can't see and it, it's kind of a, a play by play by ear and and just kind of your own experience and and learning what to look for and choosing what you know some people may want to choose may do just fine hunting this country from the bottom and you know i chose to hunt it from the top it's not it's not a make or break type thing but to keep that in mind that sometimes it is more advantageous to stay up high as much as you can um just because you could see more you know when you're you're making it comes into making your choice of to hunt from high or low because sometimes if you choose to hunt from the ridge lines you're going to have a heck of a lot harder time finding water than than if you hunt from the bottoms but uh, so you just got to kind of be cognizant that if, if you're you know and whenever i fill up i try to drink as much as i can if i don't know where i'm getting my next water um that sound, it seems a little paranoid but if you run out of water for a day um it can it's it's a real issue for sure um and there are some you know less conventional ways to look look for water you know, if you really need a drink um and maybe that's where that once that's where that slide was supposed to be the one didn't fit earlier where i was digging i'm not going to go back to it because this will fritz on me again but um where i was digging um on that particular spot we were camped up high and a lot of these saddles and whatnot you'll see like natural seeps where the ground just looks wet you know up on these ridge lines as there as it drains down and then you know you won't see any water and then you'll see a spring pop out a few hundred feet or a thousand feet down but you know as an example that spot where you can see you can walk on it you see that squish you know the water's there but you know you have to take you know and we just you take a flat rock or whatever you can to dig it and dig holes and then let it settle for an hour and those holes will fill up with water as long as you get them make them big enough to dip your your jet boil can or water bottle in you know it doesn't seem like a lot of water and it can be a pain but there is enough water there to you know to sustain you for as long as you need to you know this picture that was a, a september hunt and there was a bunch of leftover snow and that hole in that rock and that snow kept us in water for like a week because every morning we just pile a bunch of snow on the rock and it would warm up enough to melt it and and fill up and fill up that and we'd get we'd get all the water we needed um also like if you just need a drink you know sometimes in the rocks there will be little little drips or wet moss or something you can usually just put your kisser on there and 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 suck some water out but just it's something to be thinking about now as far as looking for rams um like i said they're going to be probably between 3500 and 6000 feet typically um and this isn't a hard like none of these rules are, are hard and fast different ranges sometimes sheep do weird things and and have their own little kind of behavior cycles but typically if you're in country and all you're seeing is using lambs the rams are going to be in more rugged country like whether it's higher elevation sometimes that's not the case though um they, they may just be in a different area you know you'll sometimes see rams and i and i had my buddy shoot a great ram because he was with a bunch of lambs news and i didn't even look at them um still a little bitter about that but uh typically like the rams aren't going to be the mature rams aren't going to be hanging out with the lambs and ewes most of the time um look for you know feeding areas or in glass spots you know green spots on the edges of nasty country um stuff like that places that catch sun and you know if you're glass in the evening places that catch sun in the evening or first sun in the morning you know sheep like to be comfortable so a lot of times they like they like being out in the sun 
during the morning and evening and in the shade during the daytime. Now you'll mostly you'll see you're going to see the most sheep during the morning and evening when they're up feeding, and it's it always amazes me how a stupid white sheep can blend in if they're not moving or if they're laid down partially covered by a rock. You know, sometimes they're real easy to see and sometimes they're not. And uh, you know, if you're in a spot where you can glass a lot of country, you know, it's it's amazing what will happen sometimes at eight nine o'clock in the evening as it starts to cool down. Sheep will just start popping up out of everywhere. Some you know, not always, but sometimes, and more you know. A lot, a lot of times, just rams that I had no idea were there would pop up, you know, within a mile or so, and in you know on a hillside that you'd been looking at all day, not seeing anything. Um, I wouldn't, and I try not to ride off a certain area or a drainage until I get enough time to glass it for through a couple feeding cycles, like at least you know a whole day or a day and a half to where. Is sometimes it, all it takes is a little fold in the terrain to hide a band of 15 rams, you know, or, you know, three, four rams. They may be in a spot all day, basically in view, and you can't see them. But if you sit through a couple feeding cycles, typically you're going to see most, if you're in a good spot, you're going to see most of what's there, you know, because they'll they'll gradually move into view and out of view. Sometimes you may you may just catch a, catch a glimpse of one to let it, and that lets you know that he's there, and then uh, once you start paying attention, you see the rest of them. But I'd be I'd be very patient, and uh, and you're typically way more productive just sitting behind your glass during the times of day when they're active, rather than trying to cover country. Um, not so much that they're going to see you. You know they will see you if you expose yourself, but um, you just when you're paying attention, you're going to see it. When you're when you're not looking, you're not going to see them. So. Um, that's that's my recommendation is to just really glass hard during the times of day, early morning, late evening, when they're up and moving. And I would recommend choosing choosing to hunt either early or hunt late. You know, it's hard to burn the candle at both ends. You know, because a lot of times when it's you know times and areas where it's not getting dark, you know, those sheep are up and moving at three three thirty in the morning, you know, moving and feeding for a few hours. And a lot of times, by if if you sleep till seven they're already starting to settle down into their into their bedding areas but uh you know so it's it's hard to do both you know but a lot of times if if, if you have the daylight hunt late you know who cares you're, you're you're on your own time who cares if you get back to the tent at four o'clock in the morning you know it's just uh it's just tough to do both so that's kind of the way i i try to do it now um the you know, one of the toughest and most intimidating things is for, especially for, you know, people with less experience. And, I mean, I still get nervous about evaluating rams sometimes. The first thing you, you, you know, once you spot rams and you know they're rams, is determining whether they're worth a closer look. Because a lot of times you'll be seeing them from, you know, five, six, seven miles away sometimes. Not always, but, you know, a lot of times it's between a mile and four miles away that you see these sheep and you can tell they're rams. And uh, you usually almost you almost can never tell that they're legal or not from that far. But to uh, kind of to judge whether or not they're worth, you need to be able to know whether it's worth walking three miles over there to get a mile from them to to start really judging a ram. Um, I really like looking at. I really like looking at 
if I can see much mass, you know, I mean, three, four miles away, if I can see good mass at on the back end, which would be at half curl, then I'm like, uh, you know, it, usually if they if you can't see mass or it looks like they're petering out right there, they're they're a lot of times not going to be legal. But if you can see one that has good mass right there, and this one wasn't even wasn't even full curl, but shot him on age. Um, he ended up being nine, I think, but. He, he was just a big, heavy drop in the way he was configured. Um, he had that good, good mass on the back, so you see him from a long ways away, then, yeah, he's got, he's, he's got potential for, for being legal and worth walking closer, spending. Sometimes you gotta, it takes you a whole day or more to get to, get to where you can, you can start really evaluating the rams. Um, as far as legality goes, unless it's one that's real heavy broomed or way over full curl, which most of them are not one look sheep, you know, sheep that you just look at one time and you know they're legal. Most of them are not like that. I like to be under a thousand yards from them if they're close to and, and have some time to really look at them. And that's with a good, you know, if you have, you know, a really good spot and scope, you have some flexibility because you have the clarity to see what you may not be able to see with another, you know, another scope, you may need to get to six or seven hundred yards before you can make make a, a good call uh, on them. And I won't get too much into judging, uh, you know, as far as judging legality. Fishing game as some, as a you know a few years ago came out with a really good pamphlet that that clarified a lot of questions and 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 gives a really good reference for judging legality. Um, the biggest thing I would say is if you have to try and make them legal, don't shoot them. It's not worth it. Um, you know, it's just it, it's just not worth it. You, you put so much effort into it. You, you want a ram to be legal, but and not to say you know if, if it's not immediately apparent that he's legal to write him off. You know, spend some time looking at him, but you know, and bounce it off your hunting partner. You know, keep each other accountable because you don't you don't want to talk yourself into shooting into shooting one that's that's not going to be legal. Um, and as and I wouldn't you know this I wouldn't necessarily take this advice to the grave you know people talk about aging sheep and i would not recommend anyone that's not very experienced to, to shoot one off at age i just wouldn't do it there's too much too much that can be misconstrued or go wrong you know it just isn't probably worth the hassle i've 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 done it myself and you know a buddy of mine we've like bounced when we get good looks at a sheep we have shot a couple of them off of age but that's being very confident, like that they're for sure eight, and they have always end up being nine or ten. You know, when that happens, um, one thing that's it, I just think is just an interesting thing um, that was was taught to me, and I found it. I haven't found it to be not true, but it's something like as you're in there looking at sheep, I, I'm just interested in like seeing their growth patterns and stuff like that. Um, one of uh, like a rule of thumb, I think it was a Canadian guy that had told me. So basically, in the crown, which in the top, if which is saying the top one third or to half, basically from half curl, he told me if you can count four rings through the spot and scope, like four real rings, they're always going to be eight. And I haven't found one that's, I haven't seen one that's not. But don't like take that as my advice to to go about it as aging. It just was an interesting observation. Um, because sometimes you will get sometimes you will get short years, and sometimes there will be false rings. That, and some rams rings are tough to see in the spot and scope. You know, one ram you know may have real pale horns and dark rings, 
that you can count. I mean, it's it's very tough to count eight rings. A lot of it, you know, is, is going by like, all right, well, I know that, you know, you see him in the spots go, all right, well, I know that's his third, and I know that we're, you know, the usually the year four to five is where they start dropping down, and if, if you're, you know, just in observation trying to learn about, you know, how to do that and what they look like, um, you know, if I was to, if I'm judging one on age, I, I don't ever count rings that aren't where they're supposed to be. You know, just they incrementally get smaller and smaller, and, you know, I'm, I'm no big-time expert on it by anything. I just, I would not shoot one on age as a, uh, as a, as a newer sheep hunter, but it's an interesting thing to pay attention to and, like, try to learn about, you know. Every, I like to look at every every set of sheep horns I pick up, whether they're, you know, a little banana horn or, you know, that is a winter kill or, um, you know, any ram you see. You know, that's kind of the fun thing to look at and see if you know see if you can you can age them right. But uh, so that 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 is one way to go about it. But uh, yeah, just be aware that there that is a way to get in trouble very easily if you're. If you're if you don't know what you're doing and you're very careful so just yeah just shoot one that's full curl or double broomed and uh and just be sure what you're doing you will still be you will still be nervous walking up to them um speaking from experience even if it's one you like without a doubt one look for sure he's legal then you start wondering if you shot the wrong one <laughs> but uh anyway once you figure out a lamb a ram is legal and you want to you want to stalk him um you got to keep in mind his be- his biggest defenses are his eyes, but you got to pay attention to the wind too because they will they will spook out of there if they smell you too. And uh, other sheep are also kind of a defense. They'll pay attention to what what rams are doing around what other sheep are doing around them. If 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 a ram's bad and he sees he sees another sheep get spooky, he you know starts to get alerted to that something's probably up. And uh, but. Uh, yeah, so stay stay out of sight and and pay attention to the wind, and that kind of leads into the, the methods for stalking them. It's really you know really pretty simple. You're either going to stalk them from above or you're going to stalk them from below. You know, there's some cases where you can kind of stay at the same elevation maybe and stay out of sight enough to get in range, but um, you know, just like any kind of hunting, you're just wanting you're wanting to use the terrain to stay completely out of sight until it's time to shoot, basically. You know, in the most ideal, if we're picking our circumstances, I like to have a, a, a stock that I can periodically peek over and check on them. But a lot of times you don't. You know, sometimes it's, well, the only way to get above them is to go around the backside of this, and we're not going to see them for two hours. So um, so you just kind of have to do that. And, you know, the, I didn't put it in here, but the time of day is is plays into where your stocks are too you know it's it's best to stock them it's most convenient to stock them when they're bedded because they're not moving um a lot of times that afternoon bedding the afternoon bed down is the most common time to stock them if you're a morning hunter you see them see them moving up feeding in the morning and then you'll bed them down for the afternoon and know that they're going to be in that general spot for the next few hours probably um i'll throw as many disclaimers in there as i can but uh and that'll give you time to get out of sight and, and get above them and shoot them. And, you know, it's it's probably been, been said a bunch of times, but the reason I think above gives you a lot more advantages is because they spend most of their time looking down. 
they're you know most of their predation is not from above them you know above them is the safe is the safe space um, so so the more you, the easier the more you can stay above them the, the better the less chance they're going to see you you know as you're stalking or if you have to go in an area where you're inside of them you know if you're above them it's going to be better um, but also patience too you know if, if the wind's wrong don't push it you know it's not it's not going to make it any easier for you if, if you, you kind of spook them even if they don't blow out of the country just going to make it tougher you know wait for the right wind you know i have spooked rams not waiting on the wind thinking oh it doesn't matter it's not gonna they're not gonna smell me but uh yeah they absolutely they absolutely will and it'll ruin your day um there's some you know i, I would call unconventional tactics like over whites you know they're in certain circles they're pretty popular and I think, you know, I know guys that bow hunt them that swear by them. And uh, I think for bow hunting, there's something. I don't think you need them for rifle hunting, but it's just kind of a personal taste. You know, if you stay out of sight, they're not going to see you. I know sometimes, you know, sheep are a little wise to the wise to the walking guy in a Tyvek suit, and uh, and it spooks them just as easy as, as if you were just trying to sneak up on them in plain sight with, without whites. Um I did have last year. I was I was trying to bow hunt the ram. I ended up killing, and uh, I got I got to one one day. I got with about sixty five yards from him, and I had put on a white hoodie, and uh, they ended up zigging when they should have zagged and, and busted me. And they they only ran a couple hundred yards, and uh, no one was around to watch me. So I just acted like a sheep, you know, acted you know just acted like I was feeding and like look at them and just tried to act like they would and uh they ended up just walking out of sight and bedding down and you know long story short that one didn't i was thinking they'd come back over but talk myself out of that so i got up above them again and was stalking them again and they went back right to where i was but uh it's not necessarily so whites you know it's not necessarily a bad idea but i wouldn't it's i wouldn't depend on it to make the difference for you um one thing that does make a difference sometimes if you get busted and you're with a partner um, stalking from downhill you're much more likely to be seen especially if you expose yourself when you're downhill of them we've been busted before and sometimes we'll send you know right where we can just almost get out of sight or we'll just kind of act cool you know act not interested below them and they'll sit you be watching you you get to where you can both tuck out of sight, then one of you come back in sight. Um, they don't seem to get, they don't seem to freak out too bad a lot of times if they can see you and see what you're doing. But once you disappear, then they start getting nervous. But, you know, they can't really count either. So two guys go in, one guy comes back out and just dilly-dallies around there. Um, um, we've had that had that work on a, on a non-ideal stock that we got busted on. Had... Uh, have had it work to leave the backpack there and go out of sight and have the sheep stare at the backpack. I mean, none of these are hard and fast, but sometimes you have to get creative if, if once you once you get busted. But yeah, you know, acting is as simple as it is, just acting disinterested. You know, not just not acting sneaky because <laughs> they can kind of you know they're they get chased all the time. They can they can sense that. Um, part of hunting with your you know hunting with a partner if you decide to sometimes you'll get a chance to shoot doubles and uh, I would I would highly discourage the one two three shoot type of thing that's just asking for flinches and and bad stuff to happen um, if you sh you shoot 
a lead ram out of the bunch, they almost always will give you another shot. You may have to be patient. You may have to wait a few minutes and because and, they'll bunch up and get nervous, but you will almost always get another shot. Um, you just want to, and you want to commune, have good communication and make sure you shoot the right ones because stuff will tend to get wild once one gets shot and uh, making sure that you're on the one you're supposed to shoot, which these two was last year. It was a long story. After chasing them for about 12 days with my bow, I'd had enough. Um, or it was about at the end of the time I could stay out hunting. And my buddy got snowed out of his spot, came in, and because uh, and, I had, I'd had enough, enough days looking at the ram he shot to, to know, you know, be confident that he would be age legal. And he brought a rifle, and we shot both of them with the same rifle, but we you know, set up, and his was the more difficult to pick out of the group. There was another one in the group that um, that we figured was either seven or eight, but looked a lot like him. So, uh, so we found it was critical to, to shoot him first because I could pick out the other one with binoculars out of the group pretty easily and not not shoot the wrong one. So we set up the rifle and you know got him directed onto his and just made absolutely sure you know already flicked his ear and and you know he shot his and then i paid attention to mine and so you you can do that you just it just takes good communication and uh and make sure for the love of god that you shoot the right ones now uh you know trophy care for for sheep is pretty basic you know like taking care of your capes and your meat is just like any other game animal up here you know it you keep it cool, get get it cooled down, keep it cool, keep it as dry as you can. I'd say with sheep, um, some of the trophy care takes place before you even shoot them. Like where you choose to shoot a sheep as far as where they're at. You know, you see pictures every year of rams that, that uh, you know, look like they've just been drugged behind a truck, chipped, and, you know, like you see all the white scratches on the horns. I mean, it took a pretty good spill, and that's not to say that, that that's wrong for a person to do but you know you you generally if you're patient you can get a ram and let a ram get into a spot where he's probably not going to fall it happens at sheep hunting i mean mountains are steep rocks are sharp and and stuff happens but be cognizant of like you know and think of what you even if you don't want to mount it yourself you know the capes are worth some some pretty good money so it pays and if you know the more rolling down rocks with a cape it, it's not apparent immediately but it, the rocks cut the hair if one's taking a spill down a bunch of rocks, it, it comes back looking all chopped up from the tan. Um, anyway, but any you know any decent taxidermist can show you you know the cuts to make and, and how to cape cape your sheep out. But just do your best to even keep the skin clean. You know, keeping dirt and lichen and moss, anything off the skin and meat, because all that stuff has bacteria, and and that will will speed up the the uh, decomposition process. And also, you know, I'd note that a lot of times if you're if you're hunting and have a creek available, I dunk those hides and those capes in the creek, like completely submerge them overnight. It makes them heavier, but it washes all the blood out of there. And if you let that blood dry in that sheep hair, it, it takes a lot more bleach in the in the on the taxidermist end. That bleach is kind of hard on the hair. They won't the cape's not going to last as long if they have to bleach it hard. So just make sure you do your best to wash all the blood out and then wring the hide out. You know, you're not you're not changing, you know, water and then sunshine, water, sunshine, you know, you're, it's submerged till it's time to pack up and go, then you're wringing the thing out and keeping it cool and, and getting out of there. And, uh, um, 
you know, as far as the meat goes, you know, I, I haven't gut well, I say I haven't gutted sheep in years, except I did it last year because we shot them right at last light, and it was like getting to about 10 degrees at night, and we just yanked the guts and cut them up in the morning. But, you know, that gutless method where you just take all the meat and cape off them without even having to spill the guts um, is nice, and, and, you know, most of us are going to be wanting to debone the meat. You know, I don't care for, if, if you're real close to, meat will keep longer on the bone if, you, if you're close enough to an airstrip or wherever you got to go to leave it on the meat. Um, it's arguably you get a little bit less um, less drying waste from, from keeping it on the bone, but for most of us that's just not really a great option. Um, once you get your sheep in camp as you're getting ready, if you're hunting for more or you're getting, uh, you're getting, getting ready to go, um, that kind of went over the Cape Care stuff. So try to get the try to get the blood out of it as best you can, and you know fold it up skin to skin, keep it cool, don't let it get hot. Um, the skull, I like I said, I used to carry a bone saw and skull cap them, but anymore I just cut the lower jaw off and a lot of the meat and the eyeballs and stuff like that. You can you can save a fair amount of weight weight. Um, now, Pat, we've seen this slide about 18 times, but. Uh, <laughs> Pack, you know, packing out, you know, it, just like everything else, a very personal thing. One trip versus two. Um, two trips is the smart way to go. Sometimes, you know, it's it's a lot. Ends up being, I think, three times the distance, leapfrogging gear and meat. But it is a lot, a lot easier on your body. I tend to be a little more hard headed. I I tell I tell everyone that just take two trips. And then the past couple of times, I haven't really followed my own advice. Um, but if you want to take one trip with your gear and hold all the meat, cape, horns, it, I'd expect your backpack to be, uh, you know, between 125 and 140 pounds. I mean, it's, you know, you know, especially if you don't have if you don't have much bloodshot meat or anything like that, you're you're you know, it's going to be heavy, and you got to be very careful. You know, it's doable. You know, and if it's not doable, just take two trips. There's no. It's, it's not a race. It's not a competition. You know, just do what what's within your your capability. Um, the one thing I will say is is you want to be careful how you load your backpack or pay attention to how you load your backpack. You want the hard you want the heavy stuff not all the way in the bottom. What I'll do is I'll generally put my sleeping bag and some of this other stuff in, in a contractor bag around the dry bags to keep the blood off it. And I'll, I'll like I said I'll put my meat in contractor bags right as it goes in the backpack. And you know it comes back out of those immediately when I'm stopped, but uh, you know you, I'll put that sleeping bag and bulky stuff down on the bottom, and then I'll jam the meat up against my back. You want it mid midway up, as close to your back as possible, so it balances well and sits on your sits on your skeletal frame well. Um, and then the rest is just usually it's just a yard sale jamming stuff in there till everything fits and and it works, but. Uh, yeah, just, you know, packing out the biggest things, taking your time, be careful. If your legs get wobbly, sit down. Like, it's not a race, not a competition. Um, my buddy Frank, this last year, I kind of put him through the ringer. We really should have taken two trips. We weren't that far out, but, you know, it's, it's you're ready to be done. You don't want to climb back up there. And we had dumped all our gear in the saddle and went down to clean up, clean our sheep, hauled the meat back up, and he's starting to starting to squawk like I don't know if we can I said well just put just try it just try to stand up <laughs> puts all that stuff in it and he has no ACL in his left knee 
Um, he's a lot tougher than I am. His sheep was a lot bigger bodied than mine was, but we got got him up and limped out of there. But anyway, if there's anything, if there's like one thing I would hope you guys get out of this is that, you know, sheep hunting's tough, but you can do it. You know, it's accessible. Um, there's no reason anyone that doesn't want want to do it bad enough can't do it. So, uh, anyways, there any any questions? I think that's I'm not too far over considering all the delays, but uh, I guess we're good then. Thanks for sitting through and being patient with all the uh, technical difficulties, guys. <laughs>